Hey, podcast listener, are you working so hard you wonder if the money is even worth it? If you're like most CPAs I work with, you have way too much to do, you feel relentless deadline pressure, and worst of all, you feel torn between serving clients and being with family. What if I told you you could work a 40-hour week without losing a dime? I know it sounds impossible, but my Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is designed for CPAs just like you who want to get their lives back. Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is launching soon. In it, you'll learn how to start getting your time back week by week, make your workload manageable while still bringing in plenty of revenue, what to put in your packages and how to price them, and so much more. Don't leave your future to chance. CPA Mastermind will get you on the same profitable path you've been searching for. With unlimited coaching, your success is guaranteed. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there. You know, I look at my calendar and I have to tell myself before those meetings, I have an onboarding slot in May, I have one in July, and I have one in you know, September. And I have to commit to that. And I have to be honest with them and say, if you want this slot in May, you've got to tell me you want this slot. Otherwise I can put you in the slot in July. Like I get to decide how fast to onboard people. Like I get to be in charge, right? Welcome to the business strategy for CPS podcast, where I help overworked CPAs go down to 40 hours without giving up revenue. My name is Geraldine Carter. My guest today is Erica Goody. Erica, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me again. For listeners who want to go back and listen to previous episodes I've recorded with Erica, you can check out number 116 on flat rating prices and number 175 for single paid strategy sessions. Today, we're going to talk about niching. But before we do that, give listeners a quick sense of who you are, where you are, and who your clients are and what your business is like. Sure. I uh, am Erica Goody. I'm a CPA by trade. My background, though, is heavy in forecasting. I come from a corporate finance forecasting background, FP&A at a Fortune 50 company. I am physically located in Idaho. And every time I tell people that who know you, they go, do you live by Geraldine? <laughs> um, I do not live by Geraldine, though I have met Geraldine in person. So I feel like I've met a celebrity. Um, I am in, so I'm in Idaho. Uh, my clients are all over the country. I actually don't have any local clients, but I provide bookkeeping and fractional CFO work, heavy on the forecasting, cash flow forecasting uh, to coaches and consultants and uh, service based providers. And I've been doing that for five years now. Okay, awesome. Five years. And every time I'm at the top of the mountain, I look east and I'm like, oh, I'm waving to Erica. I wonder if I could see her over there, but you're five hours away by car. <laughs> okay, so let's go over to, I want to talk about niching today because it's something that is really useful, very beneficial in all kinds of ways and also strikes fear in the heart of many business owners, including accountants. And including me when I went through it, and I think you probably experienced some same, uh, a perhaps similar level of trepidation. But then when you get through it and you get to the other side of it, it becomes clear just how useful it is. What I want to pull out today is your perspective and what's going on with you in your business now that you're well on the other side of it. For listeners, 
give us a sense of back when you were more starting out, what were some of the things that were challenging for you in your business when you were being all things to all people? I was all things to all people. And I said yes to people I shouldn't have said yes to. (laughs) And so what were the symptoms of that? So I think I met you when I was building and I'm still, we're always building, right? But I met you at a very, like I would say infancy of my business. And I was seeking out like how to build it the right way. And at the at the lack of having a niche, it's just literally whoever walks in your door becomes a client. And I don't have an office. When I say walk in my door, like a contractor who is working on my bathroom would walk in my door and be like, you do bookkeeping? And I would say, yeah. And then all of a sudden I had this person who wasn't a good personality fit, who wasn't a good business fit. Now we were matched forever, right? That's what happens. And I, I didn't have a good reason to say no. And so you start acquiring clients because they've crossed your paths. It's not. It's like, well, I don't know. The first guy I met, I just married because he just walked across my path. Like that'd be a terrible thing to do, right? Yeah. So yeah, it would just. I didn't have any rhyme or reason for the people who came to me and the people I said yes to. I just. Why would you say no if you're trying to build a business? So what happened? At what point was it where you thought to yourself, "Ooh." something about this isn't working or I don't feel like I'm headed in the right direction. Was it when your book of business was still pretty not full or was it when you were starting to brim and you were like, ah, my business is full and it's not the business that I want? So I definitely wasn't full. I think I was being really proactive. And when I had met you at the point in my business, I knew enough to know I could do it wrong. Like I had the noise in the industry was so much not horror stories, but like, this is how I've done it wrong and I'm trying to undo it. And so mine was a little bit, I call it the the foresight of hindsight. And so to think like, well, I don't want to be two years down the road and being like, oh, I wish I would have done this a different way. Let's just do it the right way the first time. And I think that was my impetus. I wasn't, I wasn't at capacity. I wasn't pulling my hair out. I didn't regret anything yet, but I also didn't want to. And so that's when I pulled you in to help me work through that niche process so that I could kind of get it right as I grew. So rather than having to undo all the things. So did you fear when you were like, oh, does this mean I'm going to niche? Is this going to put the kibosh on my revenue? What did you think about niching as it relates to money coming in the door and like limiting the number of clients that you could work with? Yeah, I think mine was less about like a limit of money and more about I was going to pick the wrong niche. Okay. Like the fear was not limiting the revenue because I was still growing. Like it wasn't like I had experienced this huge revenue line already. It was more of like, well, what if I pick the wrong thing? And then that turns out to be really bad. So I guess, yeah, that would translate into a revenue. But my mindset was more about picking the wrong thing and being afraid of picking the wrong thing. Yeah, totally. Because then you end up with something that you really don't like. So there's two pieces to picking the wrong niche, because I think that it's both possible to pick the wrong niche and not possible to pick the wrong niche. And by that, I mean, in terms of possible to pick the wrong niche, I think of an example of someone who I'm working with who was like, uh, 50-50 and went down the physician route and was like, uh, you know, for six weeks and was like, why? No, what am I doing here? I really need to be over in the general contractor niche because those are my people and I know those guys inside now. And I could think of a couple other stories like that 
people I've worked with who within a couple of weeks have known that they're in the wrong niche in the way that a shirt feels when it's too small. You're like, nope, does not fit. And I myself, I niched into the air quotes wrong niche. I went down the corporate line and was like, was six weeks in was like, what am I doing here? I do not own a button down blouse. I do not understand these people. Um, and so ducked out. So that's the pick the wrong niche route. But then once you pick a niche that you kind of think, oh, actually, this is interesting to me. I'm curious. Like, I want to keep going. Once you're on that path, then the next step is to figure out how to make it even righter for you by figuring out, by deeper, by deepening your understanding of who you're working with, their challenges, the problems that they have, and the way that you can offer solutions. So how much turning over stones did you have to do before you felt like you had picked the right niche? I don't know that you want me to say this. I feel like I'm still turning over stones <laughs> in a good way. Yeah, in a good way. But did you turn over any stones that you're like, no, this is the wrong niche? Yes. I, I assume you remember the the weekend that you told me. It was like we met on a Thursday, which is the end of my week. And you were like, hey, I won't call out the industry, but you were like, hey, dive into the podcast in this industry that you're thinking about going down. And I was like, okay, cool. So I downloaded like six episodes I could find that I thought were part of this industry I thought I was interested in. I must have like messaged you on Saturday telling you I wanted to stab my ears. I was like, I can't do this. These are people I cannot work with. And like, there's nothing, there was nothing, it's not a bad industry. They're not bad people. It was just a place where I was like, I've done that. I don't want to do that again. Like, I just, those don't feel like the right personality that I'm going to have joy in my business by working with every day in and day out. Um, and the benefit of owning your own practice is you get to decide who you work with. And that's like the first and foremost, like best thing about running your own practice is you decide who you get to work with and you decide who you don't get to work with. And it's so liberating. Uh, so yes, I went through this weekend. And I was like, nope, that's where it was like, I barely picked up the stone and I put it back down. And I was like, nope, there's worms under that one. We're good. Don't need to dig in this stream anymore. Yeah, we're good. And I was like, no, Geraldine, that's not, that's not the right one. What are we going to do now? And I think I had been resisting what felt easy and obvious to me. I was trying to find something fancy. Yeah. Like there's no better way to say it. like I was trying I think I was trying to find what I thought I quote should do. Mm -hmm. I was resisting this thing that felt obvious to me at that point and I and it's changed since then even. And this is what I didn't understand about niching is I thought it was like I niched, check the box, we're done now. Like I misunderstood what niching meant. Niching is a process, not a task. Yeah. You don't just pick the niche right and then you're done you pick the niche dive into the niche learn more about it fine tune it pivot keep going find something you know and it's i'm still niching 2 years later i'm still niching and yeah i'm so like in a good way i think somebody i don't want somebody to hear that and be like oh my gosh 2 year process that sounds terrible like no it's amazing because what happened that weekend, I tried listening to a podcast for an industry I didn't want to niche in. What happened was I was like, okay, what I really want to do, I just want to work with awesome women mm -hmm. because I thought that I thought that was that was like the obvious thing. Like there were so many women in my network who are doing amazing things. I was like, I just like I don't know why I'm resisting this obvious thing that I feel like would be easy. Like sometimes I don't know if this is an accountant thing or just my personality, but. Like that's quote too easy. You can't do the thing that's too easy. I don't I don't know why we do this, but I was like, nope, we're not gonna do that. 
And so finally, you know, that next week we talked and I was like, okay, I want a niche in women-owned businesses. And I did. And we dove in, we wrote the website copy, we launched the website. I, a few months later, I launched the mailing list. I did it. I, I, you know, I started marching down that path and it felt good and it felt right. But in that process, I learned so much because even in choosing that, I I was like, I think this is a cop-out niche. Like women-owned business is not narrow enough. And I knew that choosing it, but at that time, that was like my next step was niching was scary. Take this first step and it's going to keep you going down the path. And so in that process, it probably, I niched that direction for a year and I talked to people and I talked to prospects and I learned so much about what I liked and what I didn't like again in that niching process, because I would get on calls with amazing women-owned businesses and I didn't want anything to do with their business because the accounting behind it, I I was just not interested in that type of accounting. For example, I got somebody referred me as as you do when you niche, people start thinking of you like, oh, I have a woman who owns a business who should talk to you. And so I would get all types of businesses. And it became very clear that not every business was the business I wanted to work with. Even if they were amazing women, I had a woman who ran, I don't know if you know Kona Ice, you know, Kona Ice, like a, like a shave ice franchise. And woman owned multiple trucks driving cro- across county lines with, if, if you're an accountant doing sales tax, you're like, not across county lines, don't do that. And and paying their employees in cash because they were they were high schoolers and just all of all that you can imagine from a fleet of umpteen trucks driving in every direction with cash coming out of their ears. And th- this woman was amazing, but I was like, I don't want to do that. Like, thank you for helping me discover that. Like, no, my niche is not any woman who walks in the door. It's something different, and I I wouldn't have gotten there if if I hadn't started down the path. And similarly, that niche was also excluding all these really awesome men I didn't know were out there who were had really similar lifestyle businesses that were my like they were on the same page as me, and they were having trouble finding an accountant who thought like them. And I was inadvertently excluding all of them, which I didn't want to because they were doing really cool things that I wanted to be involved in. And we meshed well. I just want to come back and touch on the, it's supposed to be hard thought. And sometimes when we believe that it's supposed to be hard and work has been hard and we've worked hard to get there, when we think it's supposed to be hard, then we look past, like you say, the obvious an easy path because we think that's not hard enough. That can't possibly work. But the obvious and easy one is so often the one that is just makes life and business so much easier and so much more joyful and fulfilling. But I want to ask you about the additional stepping stones in your niching process, because like you said, it's been a journey and it sounds like something of a process of elimination. So once you figured out, okay, women, and then, okay, not these kinds of things, not these kinds of businesses. Ooh, I'm excluding men who I actually like. What were some of the next stepping stones on your niching journey? I don't know that there was, I'm trying to think if there was something obvious. It was like, I had just started doing the things I thought 
I was trying to speak to those people. And so I set up platforms for myself to speak to, you know, at first women-owned businesses. And so I set up a mailing list and I started like speaking to that ear that was listening. And that that became very easy because I was having so many of those conversations. I knew what their questions were and I didn't have to like, yeah. As I started realizing that service-based niche was my thing, like it became clear, like I don't need to talk about inventory. Like there's plenty of people with inventory questions. My people listening didn't need to hear about it. So I just didn't have to talk about it. I also didn't have to stay up to speed on any changing accounting for anything that I wasn't doing, which was a huge relief because as we know, there are like the changes to to regulations right now are are fast and flying in every direction. And the more you can narrow down to what you actually need to know, then it just makes your job so much easier. And you don't feel like you're behind because you're choosing not to stay up to speed on certain things because it doesn't it's not relevant to your client base. And so I think to answer your question, like the process was just start doing. And it became very obvious, like without trying what was right, what was wrong, what to do more of, what to do less of, what my pro- like service offering was, what my own package pricing was, because it, be- it becomes very clear what that smaller group of people needs and will pay for. Gotcha. Okay. So just for listeners, what would you say your niche is now? I Well, my website would tell you it's coaches and consultants. Is there a certain revenue range to it? Uh, they tend, I don't, I'm trying to think if I have a revenue range. I did put a revenue range on my pricing, on my pricing page that goes anywhere from like a hundred thousand to 2 million. Yeah. They tend to find me at 200 and they start scratching their head about an, about S corps and a little bit further down the line when they can't figure out all the directions their cash is flying and uh, can't make a good decision because they they don't know what it's going to do to their bank bank statement you know 6 months down the road that's kind of my specialty is uh doing predictive forecasting like that but so that's what my website says and again the more i talk to people the more i realize that i am attracting a certain even a more niche type of person like it's not just a c- consultant it is tends to be other fractional executives like, whereas I would call myself a fractional CFO, I tend to find fractional CIOs, CMOs, CTOs. And those tend to be the people who can offer, at least for what I'm providing, they offer really high value of services. And so they're bringing, they have the ability to bring in a lot of money at a high margin and they don't know what to do with it once it gets there, right? They don't, they don't give themselves permission to send, spend it they don't know how to max out their 401k with it. What's right? What's the right methodology? Will I have enough money to cover my quarterly taxes and my um, 401k? And we kind of like get to talk through all that. And that tends to, I find, attract those more fractional uh, consultants. Oh, that's so interesting. I'm not up to speed on this. And that's that's like within the past, I know this is like literally within the past two weeks, so what happened was I shut down my intake form between December and April. So I don't do taxes. And what I find is that everybody wants to have a discovery call during tax season because they need a tax person. I also struggle to say no to people. 
And I can't say no, I won't have a call. So I made my website say no to everybody. They couldn't even get a hold of me. They had to get on my wait list. So for four months, I built a wait list and nobody could contact me. I mean, some people snuck through. Let's they have their ways, but the majority of people got sucked into a wait list. If they wanted to talk to me, eventually you had to get on my wait list, which means on April 1st, I got to send out this email to I had 12 people on the wait list, which I thought I was very happy with. I was like, 12 people want to talk to me, really? And I get to control the timing of that. So I got to send out this great email that was like, hey, I can't wait to talk to you. I want to hear about your business. Grab time on my Calendly. Here's a two-week period where you can book time. So now I'm in this two-week period as we speak where I'm getting to just have all these like back-to-back conversations. And I think I was thinking about this today. Had those had those meetings been spread over four months, I don't think I would have seen the um the patterns in people as much as I do as they're back to back because i I feel like and this is a good thing. I feel like I'm a repeating record. Like I'm on repeat or they're on repeat. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is so interesting to see that people are a, I'm attracting similar people, like really similar people in similar roles and pricing levels. And a lot of them have the same questions and I'm giving the same, I'm able to give the same solution that already exists to all these people that have landed on my calendar. It's so interesting. Do you have room for all 12 or are you just going to handpick the ones, cherry pick the ones you most want to work with? So that was also interesting. So I got this list of 12 and because I have a niche, I immediately sent emails back to uh, three, 25% would be three, four, three, and um, and said, I'm so sorry, we don't support businesses in your industry. Like I already, I was, I felt so confident saying no. And like, you know, I don't want to be the bad guy. Like, oh, I, like I do want to help everybody. And that's so hard to say no to people, but suddenly your niche becomes the bad guy. Like I, like, oh, I, I would help you, but my my firm doesn't help people in your industry. And it's no longer like Erica who's saying no. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, my firm doesn't support people in your industry. Let me see if I have somebody I know of that could support you. Um, you know, and it's it's no longer like the guilt, the guilt is gone. I just don't the firm doesn't do it. I'm so sorry. I wish it did. I really did, but that's not our niche. Okay. So will you handpick how many will you let in the remaining nine? How many spots are there available? I, this is the first time I'm doing this. I'm figuring this out on the fly and like, well, how do you let people in? And cause I'm very, I'm very conscious to not overload. I really want to focus on my one client that's onboarding at that time. And so, you know, I look at my calendar and I have to tell myself before those meetings, I have an onboarding slot in May. I have one in July and I have one in, you know, September and I I have to commit to that. And I have to be honest with them and say, well, I, if you want this slot in May, you've got to tell me you want this slot. Otherwise I can put you in the slot in July. And so like, I get to decide how fast to onboard people. Like I get to be, I get to be in charge, right? How That's another like liberating thing is you get to like build this process where it's not 
you're not a you're not a victim of it. Like, oh, well, I'm onboarding five people at once. Ah, well, no, you chose to onboard five people at once. Like, I can also choose to onboard a person every other month, or have two strategy sessions this month, or next month when it's June and our family's on vacation, I'll do one strategy session if I feel like it. Niching can be so liberating in that way. It becomes so clear and who you want to work with and who is not great for your business and not arguably not great for your client if they're not a great fit for your business. So I want to talk about time and revenue as those two things relate to each other because you're judicious about the amount of hours in a week that you work. Erica has a big grin on her face. I am. That's such a, that's such a nice word, judicious. I like that. <laughs> so I think a lot of listeners work a lot more hours than they want to. I think they think that they're doing it because of the revenue, but there's very much a different way to do it. So can you talk about, to the extent that you're comfortable sharing, can you talk about you know, how many clients do you have in your roster? How many hours a week? What's the maximum that you're allowing yourself to work? And what does the revenue look like? Sure. So just for context for the listener, I've, I come from a burnout background uh-huh. and I in my corporate days, not in my own, own firm, but... I left my corporate career because being a mom of two young kids in a full-time corporate career is not easy. If anybody is listening and has done that, you know that is not easy. And it was a time in my life where I chose to decide to come home and quote, just be mom. Like that isn't a job in itself, but only, only be mom. Only, only be mom. Just. Which to be fair, and this will get mixed reviews when I say this it was easier than what I was doing before that. Being a full-time mom and a full-time employee is harder than being a full-time mom, I think sometimes. And so I was I was so happy to come home and quote, just be mom, but I miss the work. And so when I started my firm on accident, I don't know if there's a lot of people who accidentally start businesses. I accidentally started a business. I'm happy for it. But I did so, so consciously that I was not going to go back to the place that I was in. I was not going to um, be in such a bad burnout state. Work work balance with life balance was just so far off in that previous life. And so I started my business with like iron boundaries around it. Like I was not going to work when the kids were not in school, which I had a five-year-old and a one-year-old. And that, that one-year-old, well, that's when I left. You know, when you they start going to preschool, they go to preschool for like two hours a week. So I would, I only work two hours a week and whatever I could do for a client in two hours, that's what I did. And so now that has, I always say my business has grown as fast as my kids have grown. So we have made it to second grade and sixth grade, and I don't work more than 15 hours a week. And I'm very stringent on that because I know what it feels like to do it the crazy burnout way. And I don't want to do that. I've just built my my packages and my pricing with your help, Geraldine, in a way that, yeah, I will give you all the credit for that. I would not have, I was pricing so bad before I met you. And now I'm able to price in a way that I work 15 hours a week. I have clients I love and I I hope to be right around 200,000 in revenue this year. Like there are people working way more, making way more than me. That is great if that's what works for them. But I work five hours, three days a week. I drive my kids to school in the morning. I pick them up from the bus. I go to all the track meets. I volunteer in the second grade when when they need somebody to help cut out 
heart shapes or something. And I get to, I get to do both. And that, that has just been like, it just, I don't even know how grateful I, I can't explain how grateful I am that I get to work 15 hours a week, make a decent income, work with the people I love and come home to the people I love too. And I'm not, I'm not burned out by the time I get home. So good. And you know, because we have accountants and CPAs listening who are like, yeah, but top line isn't everything. So in their words, what's help them translate 200,000 in revenue without getting too specific or as specific as you want to or not want to get. No, I'm trying to be like, the accountant brain wants to get really specific. I'm trying to be like, <laughs> how much of that is salary versus owner distribution versus 401k? I mean, I'm probably, and this is the same as my clients. I'm probably a 70 to 80% margin pre-tax. Yeah. So pretty light business footprint in terms of expenses. Yes. Yeah. I have one contractor. She's offshore. She's amazing, um, but she is offshore. And so she is very affordable. I pay her more than her, her industry rate because I it's so far below what I could get onshore, but she's, she's my one, my one bookkeeping contractor. She's lovely. And then I have, I choose to have a podcast for marketing and I pay for that to be uh, edited so that I don't have to do it because again, that doesn't fit in my 15 hours. So I'm happy to outsource that as well. But those are probably my biggest expenses outside of actual software costs. Okay. So I have a couple more questions here before we wrap up. And one of them is around your list and your podcast. So what made you want to start those? Like why not not have those? The list, I'm trying to think why I started or what what caused me to want to start the list. I think it was just a better option than being on social media. And I'm on social media too. I'm not anti-social media, but the ability to land in somebody's inbox every time you send an email, whether they open it or not, that's another thing. But the ability to to own the like the production of that and the have the control over how that gets sent out as opposed to an algorithm that I can't control, uh, that was attractive. Yeah, I think there I think people wanted more than a social media post could could allow. And honestly, I just I enjoy writing. Like I think if somebody doesn't like writing and that's not your thing, don't force yourself to do something you don't want to, but I enjoy writing it. I enjoy knowing that somebody can get my voice out of it, like get my like weird sense of humor or a funny analogy that I put in in, in the email that it's going to resonate with them. And that they can respond to it and I can know what hits them or what, or they can ask me questions and it's a little more personal. And then on the podcast, I think this was where I start seeing repeat questions and I start seeing people need things that I don't necessarily want to provide in my business. Like things like, how do you set up an LLC and an EIN and that kind of stuff? Like, I personally think everybody should know that. Like, and everybody does it not in like, you should know this in like a, why is this not easily found kind of way? Like it frustrated me that, that we weren't taught this, like nobody in college teaches you how to like go to your secretary of state website and set up an LLC, at least not in my college. And it was a pretty decent business college. And so I started the podcast to, to, as a vehicle to put that information that I believe should exist out there for everybody as a free resource, like go. So when people do come ask me like, well, I'm thinking of, should I get an LLC? I'm like, yes. And go check out these podcast episodes where I explain it all for free. Because I I think 
that's basic entry into business. And I think I'm happy to give out that free information and then have them find whatever else they want in that podcast that might be helpful to them. And then with the your sort of sprint, your two-week sprint with your 12 discovery calls and seeing the patterns of questions that come up, what thoughts have you had around creating a productized service for those folks? Does that seem like a fit or is it not overlappy enough? What are you finding there? I don't know if there's a fit there right now because people are finding me. When I think of productized service, I think of something like a DIY, like let me buy it and do it and I'll figure it out. And so much of what I'm finding is people want the personal connection. People want the the face on the other side of the screen and I don't know if you'd consider a strategy session a productized service. Like it's an hour of my time. You can book it. And I think that that sells very easily because I think they people want, at least in my in my niche, people want the ability to ask the off-the-cuff questions and to get the answer and to like read your facial expression when you say it. Like I think we underestimate as accountants how much how much relationship people are looking at from us. Like they want the relationship. Like they think they want a tax return done. They want their tax person to sit next to them and explain stuff. So I don't know that a productized service is right for me, or I don't know what it looks like other than a one-on-one strategy session where we can have a real conversation about your real business and my real recommendation. Okay. So as we head in the direction of closing out here, you've been in your niche for about two and a half-ish years. So for listeners who are kind of teetering at the edge or the precipice they want to, but they're nervous, give us some of your favorite benefits to it. And what might you say to those folks? Mm, Yeah. So I think what I'm finding, and I'm finding this more recently than at the beginning of my, my niche journey, is that as I continue talking to people and onboarding people, it like I know what to expect. And so where I used to be able to, or I used to would have forced myself to like, oh, let me look inside your books. Let me, let me understand better what's going on here so I can price it right. And the price would have almost been like a custom quote every time. Whereas now, like if you've found me, if we jive, if you are in my niche, I already know what to expect. Even the, maybe the one thing I should know is like, what's your revenue range? Because if you're 1 million versus 5 million, that's going to tell me something. But if you tell me you're at 1 million, I can tell you what your books look like before I get in there. And so all of a sudden, like the freedom to price it is easy. And then also, I kind of, and I'm, you've had Ron Baker on, and this is where I think Ron Baker, like his voice pulls into here is like, once I price it right, and once I have the niche where I know what to expect, even before I open up your QuickBooks, now the answer is yes. What do you need? Yes, I can do it. Because I already know that the scope of what you need is in a box I'm willing to live in. And then I get to just say yes to the client for everything. And I look awesome. They're happy. And like I don't even have to nickel and dime or put it in scope or out of scope. It's like, oh, do you need that? Yeah, I'll take care of that on onboarding. We'll do that first thing. You tell me what you're worried about. I'll take care of it. Oh, you need year-to-date cleaned up because your last bookkeeper jacked it up? No problem. We'll take care of it. Because, oh, and here's my second new favorite thing about niching. You just got me on a, you got me on my high horse. 
I've, I've, and this is like the nerdiest accounting thing you're going to laugh, Geraldine. I've implemented a standard chart of accounts for all of my clients. I love it. Which is like, I had, I had a friend and she's probably listening to this. I won't call her out. She messaged me. She's like, standard chart of accounts makes me drool. (laughs) And it's like, it's like the funniest thing because here's what happens is like, now I onboard a client. I'm like, here's my standard chart of accounts. That's going to work for any client that is going to onboard with us because we're in the same niche and industry and everybody's got the same expenses. And A, I can train somebody on that really well. I don't have to answer like questions all day. I could just answer them once and point them to a document. And two, it just makes it so much easier again to like onboard these clients when they're like, oh, my accounting's all messed up for the year to date. Can you fix it? Yeah, because we're going to come in there and we're going to readjust your chart of accounts anyways. And now I look like I'm throwing in this huge freebie of like making sure their year-to-date numbers are correct when really like I would have done that anyways, because it's going to be different than what our standard chart of accounts is. But now we have this like beautiful deliverable right off the bat. And like, I already know I'm coming in doing it. I don't think they appreciate it. Like it's hard to your point. Like it's hard to be like, I'm going to give you a standard chart of accounts. Like they're like, oh, that's great. I don't even know what that means. But they do know what being able to read their PL better is. Yeah. And when their expenses land where they make sense intuitively. Yes. No, it's it's exactly right. Because I, I come in and I see clients who've got the same charge in two different months hitting two different accounts. And I see it right away. And they're like, wait, why are, why is it all messed up? And I'm like, we'll fix it. Well, t- like, there's no onboarding fee. We're just going to fix it for you. Because I'm priced in a way that like every month, here's your thing. Are we going to have a little bit more effort up front on our on our team side? Yeah, a little bit, but it's setting us up for success and it makes the future months revenue so much more profitable because we've done it right on the on the front side because we know exactly what to do for this niche of clients. So good. The freedom to price makes everything so easy and you can just say yes without worrying about scope creep and you're delighted and they're delighted. Yes. This has been so great. For people who want to find you or reach out to you, what are the best ways to do that? Sure. I hang out on LinkedIn and Instagram a lot. You can find me both there under Erica Goody CPA. And then if you want to, if you're interested in checking out my podcast, it is Coaches, Consultants, and Money. And you can find it anywhere you find podcasts. We'll put all that in the show notes. Erica Giddy, thank you so much for coming back on the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast. Thanks, Geraldine. Hi again. Would you rather spend your weekends outside playing or at your desk? In Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind, we put an end to overworking while maintaining revenue. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there.